Yo, what up, Cass? What up, Sean? Setting up this new Zoom call mm-hmm. with our dear friend, Nicholas Powers. Yeah, we've been recording video of these, and we're putting them out on YouTube. YouTube.com slash Ape if you want to hang with us in the digital, in the visual. Yeah, in the visual realm. Connecting to a meeting. Nicholas Powers is a poet, an author, a writer, an activist, a professor. He's so many things. And he's our most frequented guest on the Variate podcast. So it's like to have him back. We've never spoken to him remotely. Normally when we do this, it's like such good vibes. Like he'll come over, we hang out for a couple hours, we have dinner, we have some wine, we really settle in, and then we get on here. And it's created like an atmosphere for some really great conversation some of my f- favorite conversations we've ever had on this podcast yeah so this is a this is going to be a little different but i think it'll be just the same in some ways he said he's going to bring some wine so. oh cool yeah as long as he's drinking wine i think it'll we'll be fine. vibe out yeah just waiting for him to join mm. he's one of the few people i can get us to drink wine yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm ready earphones it affects me too much <laughs> Um, okay. Ooh, Jesus geez. Christ. Jesus Christ. It's going to be loud, isn't it? Let's see. Nicholas. There, oh. Ooh, there you are. Yes. There we are. Wow. Can, can you hear us? Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I want to hug both of you so much. I know, dude. I know, same. This is crazy. What the oh fuck? Oh my God. I'm like, can I be your plus one? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm so sorry for touch. This, we, we are, we are, this is our plus one over here. Hey, plus one. There's Carrie. <laughs> they're um, they're uh, just figuring out some technical stuff. <coughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is Carrie. Mwah. Yeah. She's going to do another podcast in the other room, but uh, you know. Yeah. We'll be here with you. Well, I brought some goodies. Fuck Whoa. yeah, man. Yes. I was going to say, that's the only thing that's missing is like normally there this these podcasts are a little wine-soaked, which is rare for us. <laughs> They're so wine-soaked. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, How's it been going, dog? Oh, it's, I mean, it's been going. It's been going. I, I'm so touch-hungry. I'm dry-humping my pillow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking out the window and just making Morse code signs to the people passing on the street. Mm. Yeah, there's like an there's like an illicit economy of underground handshakes. I never knew that handshakes could be so erotic. <laughs> I've had like the most sexual handshakes with working class Caribbean guys here. Oh my wow. god! We touch, and you know, yeah, he's just like, you want to you want to be mine? I mean, people are really really hungry. We're really hungry. Oh man, that must be it. Must be setting us up for some sort of orgasmic uh, coming back together reunion, you know? Yeah, there's gonna be orgies in the street. We're gonna lick each other's eyeballs. <laughs> it's gonna be crazy. I I, have a, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's that big public orgy is gonna happen in the summer? 
Are people just going to lose their shit? I think people or are, are going to be breaking some be... rules. Yeah. There's going to be some rules being broken, I think. They're going to I think I think relationships are going to start expanding cuz they're going to realize like, you know, we could, you know, bring in two, three. We could create a little small group of people who can touch each other and that we all try to stay safe together, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking that too. This is, uh, it, it, like like Terrence McKenna says about psychedelics, this is a boundary-dissolving experience. And uh, I, I thought Kaz had a really good point. The other, the other morning she woke up and she was like, can you imagine us ever like going to war again after this or invading another country. Like it, it seems like, uh, we're getting our priorities straight. At least that's how I feel. I don't fucking know. I'm isolated. No, Cass, I think that's actually a good point because when you have such a kind of, um, dire crisis that over overwhelms war and, uh, overwhelms work and overwhelms our, our everyday schedule, it's our, our minds get rewired and you realize like, oh, the, actually this thing actually has more value than these territorial disputes or, you know, the higher numbers in our bank account or like all of those things that we thought were so important. And now we're just like, well, I don't want my grandparents to die. So I guess I'll stay inside. Right. Yeah. Or, or our parents. And I think or ourselves, you know, and um, yeah. it's 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 I I agree. I agree. I'm making, it makes me sad though. Like that we're. Yeah. <laughs> I know it couldn't be out of love. It couldn't be out of some really good music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, like, uh, we were just saying this on another podcast that like, uh, without the, the, the kind of the death and suffering, this is a, a little bit of a, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in our podcasts. This like the psychedelic socialist future that we pray for and that we try to pave the way for, it's like the the event that would need to precede something like that is happening right now. That's what it feels yeah. like. No, you're it's not. You're right because I think when we were talking about it, this there, there was always kind of like two categories of big causes that would create a kind of global shift in consciousness. And those two categories tended to be either negative, like a crisis, you know, like the uh, economic total meltdown, which is kind of what we're experiencing now. Uh, or the other one was positive, which was that, you know, that we just realized from our body up, from like our, our belly buttons up to our brains, that we desperately needed love and we needed companionship and, and authentic and intimacy with integrity, that we needed these things. And that would be a, a propellant. Uh, to get past these kind of, uh, you know, calcified obstacles in our way of, you know, really old school capitalism from like the 1950s. It's still like lingering um, race, you know, really abusive and outdated notions of gender and how we treat women and men, you know, like all mm. these calcified obstacles. We would like, let's get let's get past this, you know, like this mm. kind of strict binary of gender. Let's get past this. And we thought that that would be a propellant, either negative or positive. Mm. And it turns out that they're actually quite interconnected. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Right. So there's like an umbilical cord from heaven and hell going back and forth. And it's filled with like disco music and skeletons. Mm. So... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? I mean, how great would it be if that were the case? If, if like some Beatles-esque like new music came out that we were all like, holy fuck 
let's drop everything and devote ourselves to this, to love, like, oh, this is such a fucking profound reminder of our love and our interconnectivity. Like, let's just drop the way things were. Kind of like, like, like if you're in a bad relationship and you meet somebody and you're like, oh, like, that's what happened with us. As you know, I, I met Cass and it just, it melted away previous stories. It melted away my um my previous value system my priorities everything just melted away it was like uh starting over a forest fire that's why we have this huge forest fire mural behind us it's like kind of a representation of how we got started and uh it would be such a beautiful thing if it were like music or a movie or a meme or a speech that someone gave you know but but it's it's you know we're, we're so stuck in our egos that it's really hard to come out of it without the uh the collective bad trip that kind of we're going through right now i know i personally need this you know what i mean i i see myself making uh adjustments that i know intellectually i wanted to make like five years ago but now is the time to actually make them to actually save every freaking jar i use use every plastic bag as if it's the last plastic bag i'll ever have you know think twice about how we spend our money like right now the money we have especially the position we're in we're like this could be the last money we see for a long fucking time so you start to like pay attention to your mindless consumption habits a little bit more and uh that's just That's great. Yeah, I hear you. It's it's. I wonder if you think that this is uh, applicable. It, you know, like the old Buddhist doctrine of like detachment, mm. and it's something that I've had to become aware of because I was teaching the semester of Siddhartha and the Bhagavad Gita mm. at the same time because they obviously reference each other, and the the central theme in both, uh, you know, holy texts as well as like novel was detachment, getting the ego to de- to. Uh, to separate itself from the phenomena of the world and to almost kind of, you know, take like a, an audience perspective and look at the passing of pleasure and pain and triumph and failure as, as, as if you're watching a movie and just kind of being detached from it, from a, a spiritual perspective that whatever you go through, it, it's only temporary, it's ephemeral. And even life and death is ephemeral. And obviously in Hindu theology that your body, that your spirit transcends your body and goes into another body in the cycle of karma, but at the core of it was detachment. That was like the first step towards enlightenment. And it seems that what this pandemic did is that when it forced this global lockdown and we're all kind of in a sense, voluntarily imprisoning ourselves in our body mm-hmm. and in our, in our homes and with each other is that we've been forced to, as you said, detach from every plastic bag, detach from every store that we visited, uh, detach from all the restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, even to an extent detached from our friends and our families just yeah. for the sake of keeping them safe. And so in that space of detachment, um, and the cast this gets actually to what you said, because you said you intellectually, you both knew this, yeah. but it was like, this is now the space that opens up. And I think that's, that's where detachment plugs in at the, on that kind of two tier kind of uh, category. Like intellectually, we could know that we're supposed to do this, but emotionally we're still, attached by habit and mm-hmm. routine to our Comfort, everyday life yeah. and in emotion our emotions are like glue like our hearts and our fingers are like constantly pouring out elmer's glue and we get attached to things people and routine and and so you know we can't just rely intellectually on knowing it we also have to rely on the mechanics of our emotions mm-hmm. and how do we deal with the fact that our emotions are constantly like like spider webs stickily attaching to things and so now that the global pandemic shut down 
the stores and shut down the restaurants and shut down our friends and shut down our families. Now we're forced to detach. And in that space of detachment, I think there's like an inverse relationship of pressure. We're forced to detach and all of the pleasure and all of the expectations that were met, all the money that was coming in, all of all that stuff that's not because it's not coming in. There's like a, an inverse pressure rising. Mm-hmm. Like, when are we going to get it? When are we going to get it? When, are we, when, when is my bank account going to get fed? When is my heart going to get fed? When are my hands going to my hungry, hungry hands? When are they going to get fed? And we're all like, rah, rah, rah. it's like <laughs> hungry, hungry hippo. That that crazy 80s game where those hippos are yeah. like snatching shit, right? So, you know, and so I think that that pressure is going to release into a renaissance of art and culture and politics. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. Like, right? I, there's no doubt in my mind. I feel like we're already seeing like the little wispy beginnings of it. Like people are yeah. starting to realize their power. And it reminds me like we did this vision quest this summer where we just sat in the woods. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's a Lakota tradition. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And you sit there and you don't eat anything. You don't drink anything. You don't sleep. You don't write anything, you don't say anything, you don't sing, and you're complete solitude by yourself. So you're out there for four days by yourself just praying. And there's different levels to it. There's there's seven-day ones, there's ten-day ones, there's month-long ones. They're, they're insane. But, man, do you go through the gamut of um, bearing witness to what your attachments were when you're sitting out there. And, uh, you know, it's it, halfway into day one, you're like, I don't need fucking shit. As a matter of fact, this is what I needed. I don't need all the things that I think I need to help me get through a day. Scrollaholism, fucking nonstop media consumption, all the stimulation that that we're basically medicating with. When you take that away, even for a half a day all this uh, these other instincts start to kick in and to me they're my better instincts. They have to do with love, they're not judgment. It takes me out of the scarcity mindset. And I think that's kind of what we're a little bit being forced to do right now. And on the other side of the vision quest, what was awesome was like, I don't need to return to those things. Maybe some bad habits will slip back in or whatever. But Mm -hmm. I don't, for the most part, um, the way I was living my life before the vision quest wasn't working as well for me. So here's my new operating system and let's, let's proceed like that. And what a gift that we all have this time. Yeah, I love the idea that we're getting rebooted, you know, yeah. and that and that you can realize that like maybe some of the stuff that you thought was someone else irritating you, you still go through that waves of up and downs when you don't even leave your apartment. So like who's really responsible for the ups and downs of your emotions? Is it is it the outside forces? I'm for sure for a lot of people have um, recognized some relief um, without having to do the grind. Um, yeah. How has it been for you, Nick? How are you like... Have you have you been able to see your son or how's that going? Yeah, yeah. So every every week or so, like so it's about like once a week. I guess technically it's twice a week. I, I take the car, and mm-hmm. so my mom has been trying to get me to take her like really ancient Prius. It's mm-hmm. like a Flintstone car that you have to pedal with your feet. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's like, "Please take the car." So finally, she gave me the car. So I, because obviously public transportation is is not an option, and so. I've been taking the car about uh, once, you know, like twice a week, once in the beginning, once at the end to go uh, drop true off and then go pick him up. And so I have been we've been spending a lot of time together and it's been really good because he's he doesn't know there's a pandemic right? and he's just discovering the world. And so he's been my anchor. I can follow him around the park and he's discovering the world in a very innocent way. And for him, because he's so small and everything is so new, I mean, 
what he senses through his eyes and his ears and his skin and his nose and his and his tongue, they almost like they're like experiences that pass through the kind of bubbles of words. They go inside a word, they stay in it for a little while, and they pass right back out. Mm-hmm. His words for him don't mean things yet. You know, he just he's still playing with words, and so it's wild to see him uh, not in history. He doesn't know there's a pandemic. He just right. knows that the grass is green or it's cold. You know, he knows that the slide is wet and his ass is wet too. <laughs> you know, it's like he, or he knows that the puddle that looks really nice when things ripple in the puddle. And so he helps rescue me mm. and my consciousness goes into his eyes and his ears and his, his body. And through him, he keeps me anchored to like, oh, you know, yes, there's all this happening. But if you stay here now, you can actually enjoy this very, very rich world. Mm. And that, that the richness of the world through my two-year-old son's eyes is is pretty amazing. So, you know, mm. I mean, so we, we kind of help each other out. Like, you know, I'm his dad, make sure he's fed and safe and clean. Uh, but he's my son and he, it's almost like a double play. He's both my son, but he's also like my, my sunlight. And he yeah. helps me see things in a new way. Um, and so he mm. keeps me grounded. So, and I think having a big love like the love of a child that it anchors me so that even as the waves of the, of the headlines, like the newspapers are like these waves and the words from the cell phone and the words from the computer screen are like waves and waves often of panic. Even mm-hmm. as the waves of panic come, it's nice to be anchored by my son's love so that, you know, I can bob up and down, but I'm not going to snap and be tossed about. And that's because, you know, I can, I can just hang out with him. So I'm fucking lucky. You know, that, and yeah, that, that my son is my anchor in an odd way. And I didn't expect that, to be honest. I thought he would add more stress to my life and I was willing to, to, you know, to work through that stress, but it turned out to be exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's actually a stress reliever. Mm, Wow. Like he's, he's like holding space, uh, in pure consciousness, like before you're attached to language and you're attached to narratives and you're attached to culture and all this stuff, you're in this very, very, very pure state that is like, it's, it's amazing to be around. I can't even imagine what it must be like being a father. I mean, he's like a walking psychedelic trip. Mm. He he alters my consciousness all the time. You know, he's like the strongest LSD you could ever take. (laughs) Damn, you're going to make us want to have kids. Oh man. I'm like, I'm not ready for that trip. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But how have y'all been doing? Like, I mean, how's the cocoon and, and, you know, how are your levels of like, you know, routine and anxiety, but then calmness, like how, how are you managing all this? I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm better than ever. Wow. Um, I think it it feels like a little bit of the noise got turned down, especially because like the way we live our life in New York City, we're not part of the got to get to work, got to be here, got to get there. I'm in the subway now. I'm over here. I'm grabbing a cab to here. Like we're not part of all that. We don't like the way we work, like we get gigs every now and then we go do them. They're usually not part of the city or in the city. So um, our life here is usually like we call it the Church of Chill, but. It's like people coming through here. It's like just, you know how it is. Like you come over and you hang out. Like that's what we do. That's that's what we do. And that's gone away. Um, But it's kind of been replaced by like a bigger heart, I feel like. I feel like I have a bigger heart. I feel like I have more of a capacity to, uh, to see through 
to the place that I need to see into people where I have compassion for them. That That's what I feel like this has done for me. To, even to the point where I look at Donald Trump giving some of these press conferences and I feel bad for him, you know, wow. like like to to that level. As much as I, I hate I, I hate all these people. I really do. Like like I I hate I hate everything they represent. I don't hate them as people. Uh, Andrew Cuomo. I I hate and despise everything that this guy represents, but I feel bad for him. I, I, I do. I feel bad for, for all these people that, that think they're leaders and think they're in charge. And I don't know. I, I think that's the, the pandemic acid. Just, yeah, that's a higher level of empathy. I had a good friend, Dimitri, and he said the same thing that when, when he, I think he had, he had recently done some really deep meditation. And after his meditation, he, he said that he had empathy even for Trump hmm. um, because he said he could, he could see the woundedness inside the man much more clearly. Mm-hmm. And and I realized that there is a level of of universal consciousness that you get beyond the kind of the sports team, us, them divide. And if you look at everyone as a human being and to be honest, this is also, I would say, the writer's spirituality. Um, So some of the best experiences I've had writing fiction was putting myself in the shoes of characters who are very different from me. Mm, And part of the writer's journey is when you is not to judge and I, I actually because I, I um i was lucky enough to date a lot of actresses and um one of, one of the things they taught me is that they had to play characters who they absolutely detested mm. i mean really detested, did not like but they couldn't judge the character they just had to be the character um and so when i'm when i wrote a novel uh, which i'm finishing now or editing now that i had to be in characters who i really didn't like and so I realized that, that there's a kind of consciousness that, that helps you kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes and not judge them and ask, how did they become that person? Mm. Where were the, the emotions and, and the forces that like a sculptor's soft clay that shaped them? And that's when I began to, to realize that, that it may be more important than the kind of political consciousness, which is very much us versus them, that there's this higher universal consciousness that doesn't let go of justice but does ask you to to look above and beyond the wall to the other side and to ask like how how did they become that person because how they became that person is how other people are going to become the second third and fourth version uh, or i reiterate um iteration of them and mm-hmm. so then you have to ask like okay beyond them this one person this is about forces emotional forces history the greek keeps recreating these type of people um, so I, I hear that. I know yeah. what you mean. It's and it's odd because it's like who wants to admit like, well, I had sympathy for Trump. It's almost like farting <laughs> in a room. People are like, oh, don't do that. Yeah, How it's... dare you have sympathy for Trump? Yeah, Trump? yeah. We've you become know? so ridiculous. The media has us so tightly wound and and so ridiculous. And I think when when you quit that stuff, when you sit in meditation, when you take the psychedelics, when you go on the vision quest, when you yeah. really do this pandemic right you're sitting with your own wounds and as scary as that can be that will uh, i don't know it, it'll expand your consciousness i i think to where you're not going to be so judging and so uh your willingness to write people off starts to starts to dissolve yeah Kat, how about you what how are you dealing with this um well we're we're at the beginning of a new relationship. So like, I think there's a big part of us that are on, that's like on cloud nine, 
you know we, oh, like, Carrie, yeah. yeah we're just like totally head over heels and giddy and everything's like laugh and fun and and light light like video games and making food and making each other laugh and tickling and like just like oh. all the sweet like warm feelings of like carrie put this amazing braid in Cass's hair i get my hair braided you know like um so i think that's like i can't I mean, that's the hugest part of our life right now is like, this wouldn't have changed our life so much. And I don't know who Sean and I would have been if we were doing this alone. But from the first day of isolation, we were with Carrie because our like, we had connected like a couple weekends before um, this whole thing started. So it just felt natural for us to like, see where this goes. And it's been going great. So we're definitely high on love, you know, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. And it's I think that cosmic ti- timing for sure. I, I think that oh, we, so we could have, and hopefully would have still experienced that like new love feeling, even if Carrie hadn't come into our life. Cause everybody like, that's the whole, mm-hmm. that's the whole thing. Like uh, people are a placebo. She's she, like, it, 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 it isn't her really. It's us. Yeah. It's like, we get to be around this person that reflects back at us our best qualities and with this like with these new fresh eyes on on who we are and like we get to see ourselves as that again so yeah. it's almost like a regaining of innocence type of feeling and and everything that goes along with that are actually things that i think we used to hold at bay a little bit but now we're like eh, fuck it what's the big deal like we like we're the, not the type of people who will watch movies or or tv yeah. Or play video games? Well, like, yeah. forget about it. <laughs> like, this happens, yeah. and you start to, like, loosen up a little bit, and you're like, well, why not? Castle, have a beer with Carrie. I mean, it, and I think also like, the thing about us is, like, we love to make other people happy. You know what I mean? Like, I want, to, like, it brings me so much joy to make someone else feel good, you know? And when you have more than just one person, and, like, he knows all my tricks, you know what I mean? So, like... <laughs> mm. <laughs> I love it, yeah. Um... Oh, yeah. Have you ever heard the term compersion? You know, a, a good friend of mine, Lee, um, he he introduced me to that word. And I think, so I, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think compersion is um, is the kind of the tension um, in polyamory as you're beginning to, to kind of slowly kind of, kind of open up and, and that kind of tension between like totally opening up and like, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit fuzzy for me. So you tell me. It almost feels like it might be like the opposite of jealousy. It, it's like uh-huh. the, the genuine feeling of uh, of joy being produced by the people that you love finding more joy, whether that has anything to do with oh, you. Oh, okay. That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's really, it's really cool. It's very psychedelic. Compersion is a very psychedelic thing. Cass, Cass was obviously, the, she was the first one that was on to that uh, <laughs> yeah. way of thinking in our relationship. She's naturally just much more like that. But yeah. it's it's like this, it's this view of the world where you're really not threatened because if you could use like a, a relationship like what we have, we're, we're very attached to each other. We've been together a long time. We've done a lot of things together. But if yeah. you can use that as um, a thing to kind of soften your judgments and not be as possessive, like this being the example of that, I think that spreads to every part of your world. And mm. that's like a really uh, amazing quality to radiate. I think. I think that's why people are especially attracted to Cass, or might be a- attracted to us as you people. Are. Yeah, but but like I I think as people, we're never looking to fucking shit on anyone, or like I'm never the person that like 
sees my friend publish a book or put out a movie or do this or that and i'm like Like, i know what you mean i know i know know. like you know what i mean i'm psyched for them like i'm so psyched for for all of our friends and like we cheer each other life is like this beautiful garden and you want to like water your friends water beds and that doesn't mean you get to be the person who picks the flower and you get to look at the flower all the time but you know that there's that flower out in the world whether or not you're the one who gets to personally enjoy it. And so um, when I kind of like made that switch, which had to go through like a lot of darkness and jealousy and a lot of like threats and all that kind of stuff, it it was like, oh, it's so nice. But it's something you have to earn though, by actually going into the shadow realm and being like, where was, was this jealousy rooted to begin with? Was it even in this lifetime? And just, trudging up all the stuff drinking the ayahuasca fucking puking your brains out drinking it again puke your brains out have a big fight fucking yell at each other pretend you're gonna fucking break up all the things that you fucking got to do to like just bring it all up to the surface let's bring it up to the surface and just like move this energy kind of pave the way for us to do a relationship like what we're doing with carrie right now which was wasn't something we were out in the world seeking or looking for or anything like that. It just starts happening because you're grooving. I'm so addicted to like uh, clearing patterns, you know, and I I think what you're asking is like even more than this going on is like, I'm taking the time to, we're working with this magic man, Gabriel, who we've had on the podcast a few times who we met down in up here, but he lives down in West Virginia and he really is on a, another plane in a lot of ways and can, and bring up. And I, I just was on the call uh, phone with him yesterday and he took me through like some childhood slight trauma. I want to, I say trauma slightly because everything to an individual is like their own personal trauma, but maybe in the collective sense, it wouldn't be considered a traumatic event. I just want to clarify that, but like yeah, yeah. taking me through these moments where like, maybe I felt like sexualized at a young age or I got into this or I understood this or this like the word that you have these like loss of innocence and I Uh, and I'm having this time right now to do that work because we have time and we have this time now to talk to you like we're doing a podcast every day right now because our friends are home you know what I mean and they want to connect and they can connect and so I, I definitely am very grateful and obviously more than anything, very grateful to you, Nick, for coming on and talking to us. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I was, I was so hungry to see both of your faces, you know, mm. and even more so just to like, just like be in your presence and be able to like, you know, just give you hugs and just mm. see you, you know, in real life. And, and, and I, I actually, I really, cause I mean, I saw, so I'm, I, I'm Polly. I came out Polly. Um, you gave us I'm, the weirdest, you gave us, you were one of the early people who were like, we said this thing to you cause we had dated a girl back in the day and you're like, um, I'm not Polly and I don't, <laughs> I'm not trying to like, when people tell me they're Polly, I think they're trying to hook up with me. And so like, you've had a, a quite an evolution. I don't even know if yeah, I'm Polly personally. Yeah, and, it's weird. and I'm so glad, uh, it feels more freeing. And it's also, it's odd because to, to be that now, um, during a quarantine Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um and and it's odd because it it doesn't mean when i say i'm poly it doesn't mean that it's it's active all the time so maybe i'm in a relationship where i'm not poly at that particular moment but i just feel like that's at that point my default setting Mm. interesting and it's now it's it's basically that's always a, a potential that can be activated with careful conversation with a partner so for me, I guess I'm, I'm polypotential. You know? <laughs> I love that. And I just, and I just embrace it fully. Um, and, and also realistically, just to think that um, to, to kind of quarantine someone else's genitals for, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and to say you could never be attracted to someone else or you are, but you can't act on it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I find that what that does, that kind of, it, it's a very kind of capitalist way of approaching sexuality. Like right. I own your private property and I own the means of production of intimacy. Wow. Um, and it's kind of crazy. Um, also, to be honest, because to, to that means that I've, I deny them a sense of rebirth because the beauty of, of being in love with someone deeply, and not just a passing, you know, quick fuck, I'm talking about like really being deeply, you know, entranced by someone is that like what you just said, it's like the looking glass self by uh, Charles Cooley, uh, you know, that famous text is that, you know, you, you kind of impart, see yourself through someone's eyes and you begin to change your own identity. And so what love feel what new love feels like, it's like a, a, a kind of waterfall on your brain and it, and it cleanses a lot of the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the layers and layers of newspapers and layers and layers of websites and layers and layers of you should do this and shouldn't mm-hmm. do that. And it cleans it off and you see yourself as a radiant child and mm-hmm. you're being held, you know, close to someone else's body and you realize that you deserve love and it gives you a rebirth. You're like, oh, all these qualities that I liked about me, uh, but I was afraid to embrace. Now I can embrace them and things I didn't even see about me that the other person sees. Now they can come to the surface. And why, why would I want to deny someone the chance to be reborn in someone else's eyes because I'm afraid that they're going to leave? Yeah. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I, I think the greatest form of love I want to practice is generosity or a polyamorous generosity where, you know, that you can actually go ahead and be reborn in someone's eyes and, and come back and teach me who you are now mm. rather than, uh, you know, stay, you know, stay inside our relationship forever and ever and never and only be reborn through my eyes which means that you may be trapped inside the version i have of you yeah and and, and that's a that's an that's an unfair that's unfair you know so i I want people i want my lovers to be butterfly whores (laughs) butterfly whores i love that Mm. i go off i feel like your new wings and i want your wings to be mirrored and i want you to reflect all the faces that you meet in all these new places new faces new places yeah go off butterfly whore go off off. (laughs) oh man i feel like i do a double dance with it because like i totally agree with that and i obviously practice it like wanting sean to um be love and feel love um and do what's right for him but it's it's this this dance between not one person can fulfill every need you have but at the same time this one person is the infinite universe also so putting him in a box of the kind of person he's going to reflect back to me and limiting that and being like well I'm only ever going to see this reflection that is this like limiting belief about who I can be and then who he can reflect back to me because it is this mirror and so there's like infinite depth to my partner that I've like really sunk into that makes me feel like I I could be with him, just him for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Like there isn't this need yearning. yearning. Neither one of us have that like yearning for another partner or, or to be with someone else. It like it's funny we uh, we have a friend who's who's pretty famous. He's he's actually having a big moment right now. Um, in, in his fame, I won't mention yeah. who it is, but people might understand who I'm talking about. And him and his him and his wife the other day put out a video on Instagram, basically saying, um, "Yeah, we want to expand our relationship. Uh, if you want to date us, hit us up." Ah, uh, I love that. Whoa, and there like, you go. yeah, we were we were 
like, <laughs> like it's uh you know to me it's it's like it's so strange to me it's almost the opposite of like even though it's in the same field of what we're doing it's almost the opposite because it's uh it's it's entrenched in this feeling of yearning like you could tell this couple sitting there in quarantine with their newborn child and they're bored and they're yearning and so instead of meeting someone liking them and asking them out they're just asking everyone out and they'll see if they like them later and it's almost like really <laughs> not what we like that's why i don't like we don't identify as like polyamorous <laughs> you know oh that's amazing it just dude yeah yeah we'll figure it out later that that ain't us that's like that that's definitely not our approach it's so funny because we're like not poly like we don't want each other to feel threatened we don't want to be away from each other so i think to call for us to self-identify as poly would probably be wrong but we we fall in love with a person together a lot of times and that maybe sounds creepy and maybe that kind of like kind of cringy even saying that because i actually think it's beautiful i feel like you guys are creating like an erotic village (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, like, I, because I, I, I listened to the other your other podcast, and the ones that really struck out to me are the ones where you're you're delving into your relationship. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I remember one where you know, you know, Sean, you know, you were admitting, you know, some of the kind of conflicts that you had within, and Cass, you were like how much you wanted to help him and be there for him, but then sometimes felt like you were like spinning wheels. And it was just really beautiful. And it, you even like broke down and cried a bit. I think both of you. And, oh, yeah. and, and I found that, and, and this is odd to say, but a very kind of pedagogical and, and, and an educational podcast. Because I, I, I experienced it on two levels. One, here are my friends who I love dearly, who are incredibly being heart vulnerable, open sky. And you can just see the whole vista of the landscape of their emotions. And, and then the other part of me was like, oh, but this is also an incredible teaching lesson of what it's like to, to confront difficult knots and instead of yanking them, slowly massage and massage them until you realize that they're like a same beating heart. Mm-hmm. And then both of you in a sense have kind of created out of two hearts, like a single one that beats together. Yeah. And I really felt that that was a pedagogical moment or a teaching moment for me. Yeah. Um, in terms of like my evolution of like, you know, here are people being honest in public emotionally about their inner landscape, but also that, this is how you have honest conversations that allows for an erotic village, you know, that mm-hmm. allows for two people who are kind of like, you know, two shamans, you know, a, a female male shaman together, kind of introducing new loves and falling in love together. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually quite healthy, uh, to be honest, because it also shows that there's already enough love together to create a unified consciousness to then also love someone else together. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and I, we don't I, have I, to like change their diapers or anything you know yeah <laughs> i mean i have friends who are into that <laughs> they are yeah, diaper, I play? Like a diaper play <laughs> i Next. saw a diaper play you know with my own eyes it was very powerful oh, oh my god I bet. Um, yeah i you know I'm what else like, <laughs> sorry no that's, that's like i mean i literally saw him i won't say who it is but oh my god i literally saw him like take off the diaper uh, no, put a diaper on, and, and he, you know he's a grown man with a diaper with a pacifier. He, you know, they rock him, little baby, little baby, and then he pees and shits in the diaper, and the daddy cleans him up, um, huh. and then puts talcum powder on him, jerks him off, and then cleans him up, and then, you know, and then and then they they cuddle, wow. and it was a diaper scene. And you saw this in person. 
Yeah, because he, he came over. He was like, hey, man, you want to come over and just hang out? And I was like, sure. And he's like, hey, my daddy's going to come. And I was just like, oh, it's cool. I'll leave. And the dad came and, and um, he was really actually a really nice gentleman, I, I think, from Alabama. And, you know, he was, he was just a, this incredibly gallant guy with a, just a beautiful southern accent. And we got talking and we're talking about the South and about race and politics. And then he was like, oh, I should start my scene. And he goes, you're more than welcome to stay. You know, and like the two parts of me, like the bourgeois part of me is just like, oh, I should go because this is, you know, but the, the, the little like mischievous part of me is like, oh, how many times am I going to see diaper play in person? Oh, my God. I got to see this. <laughs> so I sat my ass down. And, but I asked him, I was like, are you, are you cool having an audience? And they're just like, if we could get you popcorn, we'd get you just hang out and just enjoy and give us a scorecard afterwards. And so he did the whole thing, the diaper, the peeing, the shedding, talcum powder. Wow. And then at the end, he was just like, and I was like, I was like the, the Canadian judge. I was like, Jen. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> wow, Nick. You'll win the Olympics. <laughs> wow. That sounds therapeutic. You know, it's not definitely my thing, but I think that the guy that wants to revert back into being a little baby that is pre-language, pre-function, pre-potty trained. Like yeah. they're needing to go, but they're needing to retreat back into uh, a much more innocent version of himself because this world has, you know, maybe fucked with them a little bit. And That's exactly what he said. He, wow. There, there's a whole diaper community. Um, <laughs> every, every fetish. <laughs> community. There's a whole diaper fetish. NBC. The new script is coming to you soon. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> diaper. Um, but they're... Every fetish, I think, is located in some archaeology of childhood. Mm. I think every fetish is uh, a knot in one's history where something was frozen in place, something was locked in place, and, um, you know, your adult life had to kind of swim like water going around the dam. It had to kind of swim around that blocked place inside of you. Because, you know, you still had to live, you had to grow, you had to get a job, you had to discover love or lose love. You still had to go through life. But there was always that block. And I think what fetishes do or the, the fetish communities is that they find specific fetishes that actually are are really subliminal addresses to a blocked part of one's childhood. Mm. And I think that adults reenacting fetishes are ways of opening up. So diaper, it's all about vulnerability, to be honest. Yeah. Wow, um, yeah. It's about people who felt vulnerable and, and wanted to feel safe because they didn't feel safe. Um, I've talked to people who are into BDSM. Again, not my particular thing, but I was curious about it because curiosity is my fetish. Mm. And so, yeah. And so I asked them and I was just like, well, what, what does this do for you? And they say, well, you know, some people were abused. And what they do is they reenact the abuse until they feel like they can master it. Um, some people I know are into uh, rape play, women. And they do that not even because they were somewhere, but not because of rape, but because they were afraid or they knew. And so what they did is they, they want to master the fear of it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people do fetishes, and I think it's usually locked in a trauma that has blocked the flow of their life, and they go back and they open up that trauma so they can go ahead and reclaim parts of their lives that have been suppressed. Wow. And so it's kind of like Freud wearing leather. Yeah. Imagine Freud with a flogger. Yeah. We, you know? It's, it's funny, as you're saying this, I'm trying to apply it in my head to um us as a, as a society we definitely yes we do this uh, like uh, i can only speak to america like we have fetishes 
for incarcerating people, for brutalizing minorities, all this stuff that is fucking trauma that is baked into like our our history and our story as a our, our birth story as a country and all these things that happened in our childhood as a country the things we did yeah. the things were that we're ignoring because like you're saying we got to move on we got to we, we got to have the economy and build things and do things and, and get to school and educate our people and we got to do all these things but there's this shadow and we deal with it by our collective fetishes. And uh, there, I could spend a whole podcast talking about what these various fetishes are. Like, as you were hey, saying this about the individual. That should be part two. Because I, yeah. I, more and more, um, I mean, you know, the truth, and you know this is, I mean, the truth is like that we're a deeply mixed culture. Mm-hmm. Both like genetically, both behavior, everything. Um, and I remember when I went to Europe, it was really funny because I was, I was, I remember I met some uh, Americans, white Americans in Europe. And I was just like, wow, like we Americans really kind of like move our body language, everything. It's, it's really black American and Latino and, and mixed. It's very mixed. It's not like a European kind of vibe. And I realized like, oh, white Americans aren't as white as they think they are. Mm-hmm. And they're not as white as I thought they were. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and then. I hang out with my friends who are of color. It could be recent African migrants, folks from the Caribbean, African-Americans, maybe from the, from the South, maybe from uh, the Northern cities, uh, Latinos, Dominican, Boricuas, uh, Venezuelans. And a lot of us grew up on like weird 70s, 80s white sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all have different white voices and different white archetypes that we enjoy performing as sometimes. And then and I don't mean double consciousness or in some pathological way. Like we actually just that's part of who we are. That's how we grew up. And so we're incredibly mixed. And that's the reality. Mm-hmm. And then also genetically, like if I, you know, if you test someone, you look at your DNA, your DNA is like a museum of different quote unquote races stretching all the way back to primordial history. So like no one's really pure. We're all mixed. And, but you're right. We have these weird fetishes. I think race is America's fetish. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, so yeah. Weird. And like now I'm coming to the place where it's like it's not genetic, it's not cultural, but like a lot of the hate and the anger and the sorrow and the trauma and the grief. And like you said, the mass incarceration, it's 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 a weird reenactment of a racial trauma that the country uh, hasn't really kind of just excised, gotten out of, exercised, like just, you know, get it out. It gets reinforced. And, and so, you know, when I hear arguments about reparations, I was like, yeah, half of it's about the money, but half of it is really more about recognition, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's and why it's so again, important, I think. Yeah, it's just about recognition, but it's also like, I think so, so much of this country is also built on poor people, and we haven't really recognized like what happens to poor people across, across race, white, black, Latino, Asian, like poor people. We have it's like, there's all these like fetishes that we have. Like one really clear fetish I had I, and it, that was kind of broken for me. Um, it happened a couple of years ago, to be honest. And I remember, cause I grew up a little bit with Puerto Rican nationalism, black nationalism, which is healthy. Cause it helps you realize how much racism has poisoned my psyche mm-hmm. and, and nationalism was a good way of getting it out. Like, oh, okay. I, I could clearly see how, how white supremacy infiltrated my particular mind how I needed to get it out. But what it did is it sometimes made me stupidly angry in reverse, stupidly angry at white people. When the reason I say stupidly angry is um, I remember when a good friend of mine, I won't mention his name, but he went through some white guy. And I've known, he's like a brother to me. I love him. And we've known each other for 20 years, took me to Burning Man. And he went through some really, really hard times and kind of went through some alcoholic times too. 
And, you know, he took care of me when I was going through hard times. And I remember when he was there and I would just spend hours talking with him and and I looked at him and I just looked at his eyes and I looked at his face and the, and the emotion coming off of his face. And it just struck me. I was just like, I can't, I couldn't see him as white. I could just only see him as a human being who was suffering. Mm. And it really kind of shattered like a little bit of like this kind of anger that I had towards white America, you know, because I realized like, wait, what if I kind of start, stopped saying white and just kind of peeled off that label? I can put it back on. If I, yeah. if I just peeled <laughs> off that label and I just looked at it and I just saw human beings who are suffering. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, it just struck me and it, and it, and it changed me. Now it didn't change me all at once. I still had flashes of kind of racial anger, but it started on me on my trajectory of looking at pain on a human level yeah, and not always through a racial lens. And then oddly enough, after that, I could see how race defined it in a more specific way. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I kind of, I, I pulled back and I thought, oh my God, race is not about genetics. It's about trauma and fetish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, in class, it's about trauma and historical trauma and historical fetish. And so I pulled back and I was like, oh, and I looked at my, you know, my friend who eventually got out and got into a lot of better space and he's in a much better place now. Um, and going with him into that kind of the, the, the bottom of the pit and being forced to see him just as a human being forced me to realize that like, oh, one of the consequences of dealing with racism is that it could be so inside my head that I could forget that the hum- that that the reason I'm angry is that my humanity was denied. And for me to deny other people's humanity uh, by only seeing them as white was, was actually, in a sense, trapping me in the very thing that I wanted to get out of. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. So it was a very weird, it, it, it was weird because I hadn't been really raised to think like that, to be honest. And mm-hmm. so finally I got, you know, got to that place. And now when you say fetish, I was just like, I feel like America needs a, needs a daddy. It needs yeah. a leather daddy. And it needs to shit in its diaper. <laughs> and it needs to be cleaned and jerked off. <laughs> I, think, you know, I don't know. I think, yeah, America needs like, and I think maybe the weird way this pandemic is like, we're shitting in our diapers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one's getting, anyone else who hears this is going to be like, you guys are fucking crazy. Are you high? <laughs> yeah, truth, America needs to shit in its diapers. Oh, absolutely. Like that, that, um, that bit of, uh, humiliation that comes along with that feeling. Cause like, yeah. like shitting yourself, like to me, there's no, there's no worse thing that could really kind of happen to your body. If you were out like shitting yourself, I'd rather puke. I'd rather someone punch me in the face. Like there's so many things I would rather happen than shit <laughs> myself. Shit on yourself. Yeah. Oh, Cause it gets yeah. so on you and it smells. But couldn't we use a dose of that kind of humiliation here? Wouldn't that dissolve this fucking toxic feeling of American exceptionalism? Isn't Trump the, hum- Trump the humiliation or people not humiliated by him <laughs> collectively? I think he is pretty humiliating. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, it's so weird. The people who are ashamed about, uh, of him and who see him as like a turd in the American diaper are the liberals who didn't vote for him and the people who aren't ashamed of him <laughs> They see him as this great glistening orange penis arching up back to like, you know. Yeah, totally. Oh, my God. Yeah. They think George Washington is going to suck Donald Trump like an American penis. Like, it's a really weird. (laughs) That visual is really strong for some reason. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's the wine. (laughs) George Washington is giving America a Donald Trump blowjob. So it's a very fucked up. Mm. You know, so it's like we, we shouldn't be ashamed of him. We didn't, you know, elect him. But. God, yeah, it's 
it's I think now the, the beautiful thing about this pandemic is that people are staying inside because of solidarity. They don't want yeah. people to die. Yeah. And so we're willing to stay inside. Like no one really wants to give up their their constitutional right to gather mm-hmm. voluntarily. But that's what right. we've done. No one yeah. thinks the Constitution is canceled. But we've in effect said we're not going to practice our constitutional right to gather because mm-hmm. we don't want people to die. So yeah. we're doing that upon ourselves. Now, we don't think it's revoked permanently. We're just doing it temporarily because we, we want our grandparents to see our grandchildren or to see our children. Um, and so this great act of solidarity is though coming at a cost and it's coming that a lot of us are going to go into debt. There's rent that we can't pay. There's student loans that we can't pay. There's regular bills that we can't pay. Our cell phones may get shut off, which means we're going to be cut off from like the digital world. And all of this, we're expecting, we're like, we're almost like the soldiers who go off to a war and say, look, I came back without my legs. I did this for the country. Can you help me? So a lot of people are like, look, I went into debt for the country. I didn't want to go into debt. I didn't want, I didn't want to lose out on my mortgage, but I did it because I didn't want people to die. So since I did this, I took a hit for the team. Why doesn't the team help me out? Mm -hmm. And I think that this is where, um, I think to be honest, this is where, you know, UBI, uh, Medicare for all, I think the most progressive, um, policy ideas now are no longer Marxist socialist. I think to be honest, they're just like almost conservative now. Because they're just like Mm -hmm. almost like conservative ideas just to to help people who in solidarity went further into debt to save lives. And so now we need the government to help us out in our time of need once the pandemic goes over. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be a new pandemic, which means we we really have to shift things even more. But one thing I realized is that when I was looking and this is the New York Times article, so the New York Times, you know, which you can argue about their centrist. Um, interpretation, but they at least at least they try to get the facts right, and for the most part, they succeed in getting the facts right. And so, what do they do? They they say basically that we've, in practice, are doing modern monetary theory, which means that you can print, you know, not print, but you can the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve can do some fiscal magic to basically create money out of nothing, which is what you know leveraging bank leveraging or fractional banking is. So they've made money out of nothing. And that boggles me not to get lost in the arcane minutia of financial uh, financial <clears throat> or economic theory, which I'm not that interested in. <laughs> but what I am interested in is that are you telling me that this abundant amount of money was there the whole time and no one had to be poor? Yeah. No mm-hmm. one had to go without Medicare. No one had to go without hospital or therapy or, you know, homelessness, like all all that pain and suffering that we step over in the streets every fucking day. All the hunger, like this is one of the beats that I do for Truth Out and the Independent. Um, 90 million people are living at barely twice the the rate of the poverty line. Millions of children in the United States and around the world go to bed with their stomachs twisted and hunger knots. And are you telling me that we've had the food and we could have mm-hmm. magically made the money the whole time so no, no one had to suffer? Mm. What the fuck? Yeah. The whole time? Yeah. So that to me, it's like, you know, when we're doing this in solidarity because we don't want people to die, let's move, let's pay it forward. Let's say that we don't want other people to suffer either unnecessarily. If there's no reason in, in a modern uh, human evolved society that we need to pretend like these numbers are based on anything real, like gold, yeah. then <laughs> maybe, we don't, maybe we can just make the goddamn money so that, and whether it's like typing 
a couple of numbers in the Treasury Department and switching them over to the Federal Reserve and then they buy it back. Like, and then make it so that we have enough to pay for the Green New Deal, to pay for children having lunches at school, to pay for elders to have hospice care. Like that, that to me is the biggest thing. And, and that's what I want to claim from the, the mountaintop. Like no one needs to suffer for a lack of money because mm -hmm. we're the ones who make the money. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean I want us to be like Zimbabwe. We need a billion dollars to buy a loaf of bread, obviously. <laughs> but I, I don't think that that should be that that rhetorical move should be legitimate. I don't think you should hold Zimbabwe or 1920s Germany over our head. I think there's ways to increase the amount of money so that people aren't suffering anymore. Oh, and so yeah. that, that to me is like, I just, I just don't want to see poor people. I don't want to see homeless people anymore. You know, they don't need, no one needs to be hungry. No one needs to be poor. We, we have, we've always had enough. Why are there classes? You know, these are, these are things that I think people might have the time to ask themselves right now. They have us yeah. so divided over so many other things on the left-right paradigm that yeah. we haven't been looking at things through the lens of class warfare, which is mm -hmm. when you look at this through the lens of class warfare, it's fucking alarming. When you look at um, mass incarceration through the lens of, of class warfare, it takes on a whole new level of reality. And, uh, you know, I think that this is kind of forcing our hand a little bit on that. And... It is. And that's the thing is, I, I'm reading a book called Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson, which is really interesting because I, I, I taught a class on black Marxism a couple, about two, three years ago, right before True was born. Um, and one thing was interesting was that Cedric Robinson said, you know, this uh, Marx said a lot of interesting things. But what, what he missed was that in Europe, class, especially in early, early modern Europe, this was before, obviously, uh, there were um, Africans or Turks or former colonized people in Europe, like Indonesians, et cetera, um, Africans in, in, in France. So before there were colonized people in Europe, before there was really mass colonization, that in early modern Europe, that what the class system did is create like a pyramid structure and that there was no idea of whiteness. There was no idea of Europeanness. There was actually just specific ethnic groups who happened to be higher up on the class chain and they would use migrant groups like Slavs, mm. right? Mm. Right. Or Eastern Europeans. And they would import them to work in the factories or to work the manual labor, the hard physical labor. And then they were treated quote unquote black. In other words, they were treated as the Turks, the Mexicans, they were treated as the other mm. because there wasn't. And so what that did is it reminded me, it's like, Oh, this idea that we have the identity is like this hard fixed, silo is bullshit it's bullshit mm -hmm. it's about power dynamics who's in who's out and how you judge that and so class to me is an engine creating in and out groups who's the person who gets in on the class who who's the group that gets kicked out and that's what class is it's just an engine for in and out mm -hmm. i mean it's more than that but that's for the purposes of our conversation that's what it was and once i once i saw that i was just like we actually don't need class and one of the reasons I know that we don't need class, and this is because of the world that you, all three of us belong to, is the festival world, the carnival world, uh, the psychedelic world. What those worlds do, which is why they're always countercultural, is that they always melt down the ego. They melt down the self. They melt down the I. And they give you to that universal consciousness, that kind of summit mountaintop vision where you could see beyond the silos of identity and go beyond that and see the landscape of history in front of you. And it helps melt the ego and, and makes the ego seem very small 
And like the ego is this one small, almost microscopic wheel hub that is intersecting all of these other microscopic billions and billions of ego hubs and all the energy passing back and forth between us, you know, like a web. Mm -hmm. And that we're just one small, tiny part of this larger web. And that none of us are, are really both either that important, but also that substantial in that big web. Mm. And so the melting of the ego is a very humble. And, and it also says like, yeah, actually we don't need class because what we need is a constant kind of mirroring and a rebirth in each other's eyes. And I think one of the things that obviously the festival culture and carnival culture always encourages love, mm -hmm. whether it's like stranger love, whether it's like dance floor love, whether it's like having sex in the tent love, whether it's smoking a joint, watching the sunrise at, at the playa, but it's always, you know, or like listening to the, the birds wake up in the forest when you're in a festival near trees. It's like, it's just love. And what that love does is it, it says, yeah, of course we're different. We're always different. But there's also a core in us that allows us to understand each other, to transfer emotions and memories and ideas. And so we talk and that love helps us melt the ego away and to realize like we don't need classes. I don't need to be better than you are. I'm different. I'm always going to be different from you. And that difference is a weight that only I can carry through my life. Mm -hmm. And you can't carry it for me. And that's my burden. And that's part of the suffering of being a human being. And there's something about me that you'll never know. And there's something about me, and this is probably the most terrifying thing, that I will never know. Mm. Yeah. About me that I will never know. And I have to carry that burden of my own shadow with me um, for the rest of my life. Mm. But that shadow fuels me and gives me hope and gives me mystery. And because of that, I don't, I, I absolutely don't need class. Yeah. Difference yeah. is enough. We don't need class. Mm. I don't need to know that you're better or worse than me. Yeah. We're different. And difference is enough. And, and Mother Nature is sending us uh, the, all the signs to stop our bullshit, you know. And, and to, Mother Nature is just saying, fucking cool it out, man. Well, cool it out. Stop also, judging so much. It's flipping everything on its head because we have all this idea of class. And now the most valuable people are the people on the lower mm -hmm. rings of that class. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes! That's, that's who we're relying on. That's who we need to stay safe. And that's part of the reason... People who can stay home need to stay home so that the people who do need to go out can go out and do the do the things and stay safe doing that. Like people shouldn't yeah. be putting at be put at risk. And if they are putting themselves at risk, they should be pay, made making more money than the people sitting at home. It's insane that um, we're in a minimum wage culture that doesn't uh, value people's time. These uh, like the essential things that allow the people to make billions of dollars and us to eat food. Um, they don't get to make enough money to put food on their table, but they have to work. Yeah. It's, it's, I think yeah. it, right now this is kind of bringing, uh, we all know this, but it's bringing a magnifying glass to the reality of it. When you see a subway car full of black and brown people, that's, that's, um, crowded yeah. in the middle, middle, midst of a pandemic, it's showing how little we value human life and, um, especially if, um, different races and that's i mean we know that with the the prison system but we have this idea that they did something wrong you know what i mean yeah and yeah, now we're seeing no not only did they not do something wrong they're working their asses off to make sure that you get your medicine and you get your groceries and that you get to like go to work and that the roads are fixed and all this stuff and if that doesn't like explode your consciousness to the these lives that you've been devaluing and this this uh minimum wage is like oh you got to work your way up and you got to do this and it's like it's all bullshit yeah, no, you're right. Uh, yeah, 
there's there's a great reckoning that needs to come out of this is that the people who are who we rely on the heaviest after you know when this is over and this may not be over there may be more pandemics but one of the things that definitely has to happen is a reckoning with who saves our ass and it's it's the ambulance workers it's those delivery guys the mexican delivery yeah. guys yeah who are sherping that the, our food to our doorsteps um it's the police you know who are out there it's also the the firefighters it's also the the people who fix the city who are fixing you know all the cables underground and keeping the subways and trains and buses running like all of the the working class people of the city the teachers the daycare centers are going to open and they're going to be on the front lines of whatever viruses are still you know because kids are i mean i have a kid you know kids are little virus sponges mm. yeah. and so that means that the teachers and the daycare centers are going to be on the front lines their bodies are going to be taking the hit so that our kids have a place to go, especially if it's a virus that doesn't affect children. So there's like, I think there's a deep reckoning. Oh, and, yeah. you know, there was a report that came, Democracy Now! noted a report. I wish I had the title at the tip of my tongue. But it basically was a report saying, which jobs create an exponential benefit to society beyond what they do, but actually has like a ripple effect that is not necessarily monetarily gauged. In other words, it's that that the benefit they give to society is not reflected in the amount that they get paid. Right. And so nurses have a spillover effect because when they take care of someone, the people who that who love that person who's sick, they also feel better. And so there's a spillover effect. And because they feel better, they can go about their lives knowing that the person they love is safe. Firefighters, you know, they help a building from being destroyed. What does that do? It has a spillover effect because that means maybe people don't have to move from that building. They can just get fixed up. I mean, there's just so much like spillover effect. And then, but the the top, like the financial speculators, they actually don't actually offer a lot. No, not only do they not offer a lot, they hurt people. They hurt people. They hurt people. Yeah. They get paid. It's like this weird inverse relationship where they get paid exponentially more, even though they actually do damage and don't help society much. Yeah. And the people who- They get who bonuses do, for giving us fucking late fees for not having enough money in our bank account. Mm -hmm. fuck them fuck them to hell no oh, yeah the, the reckoning oh. is gonna come and uh i don't know if people aren't sharpening the guillotines now i don't know when they're going to because just just look at what's going on all the people that you just mentioned the teachers the firefighters the mta workers uh the, the delivery guys all these people that are keeping this thing going right now are people that can't even afford to live in this fucking city like, what are we doing? Do you know how many cases there are of people that just got laid off and now they're on unemployment and their unemployment pays way more than their fucking job did? That's crazy. This is pathetic. Crazy. And, and I saw somebody tweet this out the other day and it was really, really brilliant way of putting it. They were like, if every billionaire on earth stopped working right now, we would never notice. If the people that earned them their fortunes stopped working, this fucking thing you would, would shut down. So yeah. that, that just shows me where the power lies and us, us awakening to that is the last thing that the powers that be the status quo wants. They really don't want us taking that medicine that is solidarity. They want us pitted against each other. They want us being greedy. They want us individuated and separated and in our own little narratives and something like this is um, something like what we were saying at the beginning of this that I couldn't have even 
imagined happening, but I did always imagine that there could be a moment where globally we, we'd be facing something that we would have to get on the same page. I thought it was going to be like a meteorite or something, <laughs> you know? Well, like Amazon workers, I don't think they want to be revolutionaries. Like they want to make money and take care of their kids and do the thing. But when the this pandemic has created this storm, this um, that that is forcing them to to be like, I'm not going to work or forcing nurses to say like, I'm not putting my life at risk because you don't give us proper PPE. Like they don't want, I think most, most people who have those jobs don't want to do that, don't want to walk out. But now that they're forced to walk out because it's a matter of life and death, they're going to, we're collectively going to awaken to the power again that yeah. striking yeah. has of, 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 um, of walking out on the job and that, you know, the, the, these things don't happen. People don't get cared for if, if people aren't caring for them. They, they've, they've... I think you're right. There's, there was an interesting meme uh, that I saw on Facebook and it said that they're not heroes, they're hostages. They're yeah. basically hostage, uh, because they need to um, take care of their family. And, I, and this hit home to me because I remember a little bit before, right as the pandemic was starting, and I remember I took a Long Island Railroad. So I dropped the true off, and then I took the Long Island Railroad from Penn Station to go to, to the campus. And when I was there, you know me, I'm like all like, da, 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 da. so I'm like, I'm always like in reporter mode. So I, I, I talked to the um, uh, to the train conductor because you know I just I love you know hanging out and just talking to the to the folks as I'm waiting for the train. And as I'm, as I'm talking to him, I said, Hey man, how are you doing? He's just like, Yeah, well. And I said, Yeah, but you know, how are you doing being here, working when when this rising fear of the pandemic is on everyone's mind? And he said, bro, I got to take care of my family. Mm-hmm. I got to I got to I got to support my family and I'm out here and I just I got to be out here. And so I realized that there was long before that meme appeared on Facebook. I had the experience of, of a working class man. Basically, I think he was Latino saying I'm basically being held hostage because if I don't work, I'm going to be. My, my family is going to suffer a lot more. And so I'm willing to put my body on the line of this virus. So the virus is, is attacking us. And we have, and there are people on the front lines, like the MTA workers or the Long Island Railroad, et cetera, the city, the city infrastructure workers. And so when I saw that, I was like, man, but this is the thing is that when we're creating the, the idea of that they are heroes, and, and I think that this is a particular phrase in our moment in American culture, because the past 15, 20 years, much to my chagrin, I've enjoyed it, but I've also kind of got burnt out on it. We've been inundated, flooded, drowned with images of heroes, superheroes, Marvel, DC, mm-hmm. Captain America, Wolverine, X-Men, Superman, Batman, whatever. So we've been, our media has been recycling these heroes, which are almost in a sense, kind of like 21st century representations that have the same function as Zeus and Poseidon and Athena and Hera and Artemis and you know you know Yemaya and you know all of the you know all of the gods of antiquity and so we've been inundated with a lot of superhero images which which so the idea of saying that working class people are heroes is a very very powerful thing because there's been this built up electric charge in the idea of hero so now we're transferring that energy in almost in a kind of a metaphoric sense to those who were once invisible. So this incredible alchemy has been going on in our culture. We're working class people who were of color and people of color can be highly visible in some ways and very invisible in others. They can be highly visible in sports, highly visible in entertainment, highly visible in, in music, 
but almost invisible when it comes to working class, yeah. which is odd because mm -hmm. most people of color are not fucking rappers. Mm -hmm. They're bus drivers. Now, maybe there's some bus drivers who are rappers. <laughs> I'd like to meet them, but yeah. they're not. Yeah, right. I mean, most people are just drivers or work for UPS or some, you know what I mean? And so there was this weird inverse relationship because if you're a person of color, you're like, yeah, that's great. I'm happy about future and whoever. And Kanye got a billion, but most of the people who you know are not that. They're like work at the MTA. And so all of a sudden, there's this incredible change in visibility. Working class people who are invisible are not highly visible, and they're visible with this incredibly powerful alchemy of superheroes, which has been now strong for the past 20 years. So now I think it's a chance to really claim that and yeah. say, yeah, working class people actually are heroes. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who they put their bodies in the front line against us being hungry, against hunger, because they make sure the food comes into the city. They put their bodies in the front line of transportation to make sure we can get in and out. They put their bodies in the front line because they care for the sick and the feverish. They actually put their hands on the sick and try to bring them back from the edge of death back into life so that we can love them again. Like this is what working class nurses and doctors do all the time. And I've interviewed nurses now and I've interviewed doctors and that, that's what they're saying, that they're working around the clock to make sure that people don't slip over the, the, the cliff edge of death. Mm -hmm. And so that families can love them for a few more years. So like working class people are heroes. And I think we need to, to finally kind of make that change. And I think that this would in some ways deal with some of the fetish trauma that we talked about and across the board. Yes, black, especially because there's a history of slavery, segregation and the mining of black bodies. But white and Latino and Asian and indigenous and gay and disabled. And what do they all have in common? Work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Working class. Mm -hmm. And what are they? The heroes. Why? Because they rescue our bodies from hunger, immobility and death. They're helping us every fucking day. And I think what what a, an incredible gender and, and ableism and age and racial healing would happen if we actually see the working class people across the spectrum are heroes. Oh, and yeah that they deserve Medicare and that they deserve free college and that they deserve places set aside for them in the fucking cities that they serve yeah. yep. should get apartments and houses in the city that they serve set yeah. aside for city workers so that they can, they don't have to travel huge distances and they can be in the city that they love. People have a love relationship and a hate relationship with their cities. And it's not just New York. New York just happens to be like the most loud mouth of them. But it happens in Baltimore, in Charleston's, in L.A., San Francisco, Oakland. People have a relationship with the cities that they serve. They mm. know they know where the homeless sleep. They know which places need to be kept up. They know the rush hour crowds. They know where to get the best coffee. They know where to get the best bagel. Like people have a deep, deep relationship. They know when the light hits at a certain time on a skyscraper, and you get the best sunrise ever. We even have an event called um, Manhattan, Manhattan Head. Hinge, yeah. <laughs> because people know when the light goes through the valley of the city and it and it illuminates and it makes all of the buildings look like gold. Mm. I mean, you have to have a deep love for a city to know when the sun is going to set specifically at a specific time to turn your city into gold. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, if you have that relationship to the city, why not say that they're heroes? And And this is where I think the working class hero motif can yeah. really do a lot of healing. And I'm specifically for women, because women are often seen like, well, because they don't have upper body strength in the same way that men do, that they're not workers. 
And yet, literally, I see them carrying heavy bags, uh, heavy bodies outside of apartment buildings on mm -hmm. gurneys into the ambulances. And I see women cops helping guide crowds. I'm talking about ableism, race, like all of that, like help make the working class heroes again. Well, I, I then, think it's like it's uh, this it's a shift in conscious. It's a major shift in consciousness, maybe back to where our values once were from yeah. like if we mythologize the working class the way we have um the ultra rich well, can I, yes. can I, like batman <sighs> batman's a perfect archetype for what we need to like flip on its head yeah batman's this really wealthy guy who yes. goes and takes people who are fucked by the system and needing to resort to crime and he kills them you yes. know what i mean like how ridiculous is that i know that's crazy She's yeah. not a, it's not a good look. It's not a good look. <laughs> no. A rich guy beating up poor people. Yeah. Well, I, I love, I always love, um, Robert Anton Wilson talks about, he's like, the word terrorist is really interesting. He's like, you know what terrorists are? Terrorists are poor people. Mm -hmm. When yeah. you're rich and you're doing those things, those are armies. That's the military. That's wars that we can approve of. And they get signed off by Congress and they're legal and all this stuff. Terrorists are the the poor and working class fighting back. Not that I approve of their means or whatever or, or their, their ways of going about these things, but terrorists are just poor people. And yeah, I think that the more that we can do, and this is what we try to do in our films um, and and this mm. podcast is yeah. let's yep. let's tell the stories of uh, the people who have been rendered voiceless. Let's mythologize the working class again, because then we will have that sense of solidarity to want to demand the best for each other and not like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, holding Kanye West up as like some sort of hero or genius or this or that. It's like, yeah. no, nah, fuck that. I'm much more interested in the person that um, went to work their fucking ass off every day for 30 years yeah. in this brutal system to put food on the table. And they also ran for uh, their local election for the school board. And they got in there and they made a difference because they figured out how to cancel lunch debt these things those are the types of stories like we really need to like we need to uh crown yeah, those yeah. people the heroes of the future and stop looking at the accumulation of wealth which to me is just the exploitation of labor as something to hold in high regard in this country because once if, if this country people listen to us the world they, they listen to us because we have a fucking loaded gun to their head in terms of our military and nuclear <laughs> arsenal. They, they, yeah, and, and they, they really do. They listen to us because we will crush them with sanctions. We will crush them with bombs. We will fucking destroy everything they hold dear. But the world does listen to us in another way where I feel like American values can spread. And if we dealt with our shadow and started to uh, precipitate this fucking shift in consciousness that we're talking about, I think the world would follow suit in mass yeah. quickly. Mm. I, th there's, there is a, a common kind of rainbow wave through the world, which is, I think, is like the kind of underground carnival um, populist culture. And that crosses national boundaries. But you're right. I think in the United States, because... And this is, I mean, there's things about American culture that I don't like, materialism and the militarism, the racism and the, and the sexism. But there is something I do like, which is that we really do prize freedom of speech. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just like a legal right. It's a cultural value. Mm. Like People we do it. It works. Real, it works. <laughs> and 
And I think that because we're more open and, and more rambunctious, especially in our popular culture, other people take cues from that. And so they test the boundaries of their particular nation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the other day I was talking about with someone from Romania and she was, you know, saying that now it's, it's easier to protest and they really do protest hard in Romania. But uh, when the dictator was brought down and then the second in command was brought in as number one, um, one of the things that happened is that there was like all these intelligentsia, you know, the kind of like the liberals in Romania were surrounding the parliament. And so what the conservative, the, the, the number two uh, fascist did is he called in the working class miners. And all of these working class guys with bats and nails in the bats were hitting and beating anyone who had pairs of glasses or blazers as if they're part of the intelligentsia. Wow. And, and so people died even before they got to the police station. If they got to the police station, they may have died there. And if they didn't die there, they, they died in the prison. So like 150,000 people were killed. And so only now that guy was put up on human rights charges, like 2008, 2009. And so now um, Romania has opened up more liberally. And so she says people protest all the time without fear in the same way of, of people coming in. And so I, I think about in here, there's so much more room and space to protest. And I think that finally we really need to flex both the mythologizing of the working class and to really embrace them and to say that we need to protest for a radical new change. Because if we do it here, because of our position in the world, it makes it easier for other people to say, America is doing it. Why can't we do it? But it's, it also makes the, the because, because the ruling class it has been on to what we're talking about for longer than we can imagine. And it's why our, our police departments have become militarized. Like they, they know that a fucking a storm is coming. And they're prepared for this. And um, if we if we allow that to continue and allow the brutality uh, to continue, the world sees that, and they enact it on their people too. So uh, you know, we got to we got to be really careful. <laughs> I think we might be in the same situation as as Britain after World War Two, mm-hmm. because um, when I was when I was studying that, it was interesting that you know, for World War Two, uh, Nazi bombs rained on London, and London was a carnival of fire. I mean, it's just museums were on fire, libraries were on fire, apartment buildings were on fire, people were on fire. And so during the night, the, the floodlights would probe the sky like fingers, looking for the little almost insect-like airplanes flying in between the clouds. And you wouldn't even see the bombs dropping. All you would know is there would be a thundering crash and fire, blazing bright, blinding and running scared, panicked animal instinct into like subterranean uh, subway tunnels. And so people would crouch in the tunnels for fear. And then after the, the war was over, uh, the British people had been hungry. You know, they've been starved. They've been eating rations and they were scared, traumatized. And Winston Churchill and, and there were the, the, the people were saying, look, we've suffered a lot. We, we really would like now to have like a little bit of an easier life. And Winston Churchill, who was, you know, the, the prime minister, he was a very kind of tough, like you got to tough it out, stiff upper lip. And he's like, we're going to tough it out. We're not going to, you know, allow ourselves to be taken in by the soft comforts of socialism, mm-hmm. which is what he called like nationalized healthcare, right. socialism, right? And so this other guy who was not bombastic like Winston Churchill. He was not eloquent like Winston Churchill at all. He was a very quiet, demure man, very, very quiet, but a very fucking smart guy, smarter in some ways than Churchill. He was a very, very smart guy. Now I forgot that his name right now, but it's you can, it's easy to look it up. And when it was a contest between him and Churchill, the people chose him. 
because mm. he said, the people have suffered enough. We need to have Medicare for all. We need to have uh, the, you know, the British healthcare service. We need to have the national healthcare service. We need to have college free. We need to have things for all people because the people have suffered enough. You can't expect for people to have a step up or live forever. Mm. And so people voted overwhelmingly for him, not because he had the greatest personality. He didn't. He wasn't an extrovert. He wasn't like me or you. He wasn't an extrovert. He was very reticent, very shy. He was very smart, but he spoke, he spoke in very calm, rational ways. But the people were like, that motherfucker. <laughs> and, they, and because they needed someone, they're like, we need someone who's going to like stop all this nonsense. So I, I think that right now we're in a moment of mass solidarity. Mm. I think there's going to be a couple of thousand more, if not tens of thousands of more Americans who die from this. Yeah. And then obviously more, probably another hundred thousand or so around the world before all this is over. And there may be a second wave. I think with the idea that working class people are heroes and the solidarity that we've created, that the next step is to say, we need someone who can be a vehicle for what we deserve. We have been self-imprisoning ourselves, denying ourselves touch and sanity for the sake of people we love. Now we deserve Medicare for all. And now we deserve free college. Now we deserve, you know, free mass transportation and subsidized housing for their city workers and the state workers so they can be in the cities that they serve. Like all of this stuff, now we deserve it because we've, we've just been through some bullshit and we're going to keep going through bullshit if more waves of the pandemic or a different virus comes hit, hitting us. And we also need to stop fucking around with nature. Like, yeah. you know, like right now, mm -hmm. like one of the reasons we have this pandemic is because industrial agriculture and a constant um, industrial growth into the the wild basins of nature, which are teeming with wildlife and inside the bellies and the livers and the lungs and the limbs of those wildlife creatures are viruses. And most of those viruses aren't really gonna affect us, mm -hmm. but some of them will. And some of them will affect us, but we won't even notice it. Like mm -hmm. most people don't even know if they have COVID-19. I probably had COVID-19. My son probably had COVID-19 because we were on the subways a lot. Yeah. We probably didn't even know we had it. But there are gonna be some viruses where I would, like daddy, they're gonna fuck it, fuck us oh, yeah. up. They're gonna fuck us up bad. And so <laughs> right up, yeah, they're gonna fuck us up. So we need to realize that one, we, we need to chill out. We need to pull back with this agricultural, ind industrial agriculture. We need to pull back from the basins of nature and, and try to realize like we can't constantly um, encroach on the wildness of nature and not expect for these viruses to kind of jump the animal and human border. Well, they're, they're just fighting back. That's all, It's just like nature, like saying, oh, not too much. That, that That's where we draw the line. And I, I don't know. I was just reading yesterday, like they were able to trace back uh, AIDS to patient oh, zero. No, yeah. Patient zero for AIDS was in 1908. So think about how long that took yeah. to spread. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and it was this guy. And it was, yeah, it was this guy wow. in Cameroon um, that was hunting a chimp and fucking did he, eat monkey, did he eat monkey meat yeah yeah i'm pretty sure he hunted a chimp and this chimp was infected ah. with this thing called simian um uh, immune disorder and uh yeah so it started in 1908 think about when that even came into public consciousness it was the 80s what are we doing now what like can you imagine the stuff that's festering in us right now that are going to become the pandemics of the future this is why we need to get on the same page like, like yeah. w w there, there can't be two ways about this. We need to really understand what this stuff is, that it is nature kind of 
not so gently reminding us that we're overstepping our boundaries, but until we recognize that, we're just going to keep making the same yeah, mistakes. Yeah, I, I had a big issue about this whole Gaia thing. Uh, I, I remember, like, on some of the, 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 the websites that I was looking at, especially I would say, like, the New Age and the psychedelic circles, there was this idea of Gaia, like, the Earth is conscious. Mm. And I was just like, well, I mean, that's above my pay grade. The one thing <laughs> I will, you know what I mean? But one thing I will say is that I don't, I don't think the Earth the earth and, and life, I, I think human life is a very small blip of, of evolved, ac- accidentally evolved life on earth. I mean, we're basically monkeys that got lucky because the meteor hit and killed the dinosaurs. Yeah. Right. A bunch of rats and trees became monkeys and some of those monkeys became us. And here we are. Mm. So we got lucky in the shooting gallery of the universe. We're a species that happened accidentally to involve a higher level of consciousness. And now we've got satellites that are peering into the very earliest dawn of the universe and can sense ripples coming from other universes next to us. That's mm. pretty good. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of us. I am too. <laughs> and, I, and I think we've, we've done good. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know if the Earth gives a fuck about us. I don't think the universe gives a shit about us. No, it doesn't give a shit about anything except balance. And even that yeah. it doesn't give a shit about. It's just baked into the fucking programming. The only yeah. thing that I, what my dumbass monkey brain yeah. can recognize that the universe is up to, and we are the universe, is yeah. a balancing act. Shit gets mm. too crazy here, we're going to fucking see. And once you start to see that in everything... You don't yeah. go into victimhood consciousness as easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you kind of say... That's hard! Yeah, I know. consciousness is so tasty. Oh, it's the best, man. It's like oh. fucking... It's like heroin for, for an angry person. Like, fuck... Oh, oh well, yeah, there's a reason for this. It was fucking Donald Trump. Like, I talked to my parents. They're fucking completely outraged. It, yeah. like, it hasn't gone down at all in four years outraged over trump out did you see what the fucking asshole did that's how they answer the phone hey mom really? how's it going did you see oh what the fucking God. asshole said today i said mom i don't hi. know I, I, yeah hi first of all uh, secondly <laughs> day. turn off the tv for a while it's trying to make you outraged you should yeah. stop it's trying to make you outraged it's trying to make you feel hopeless it's trying to make you feel like, uh, well, whatever, there's nothing I can do. I guess I'll just keep here watching this thing. But like what I say is like, anytime you want to blame Trump, just fill in the Trump blank with America. She says, I wish he would just do what he says he would do. So don't mm. you wish America would just be what we say we are? Isn't that really the problem? Aren't you embarrassed about this country and that somehow Donald Trump became the perfect symbol for what this country is? You know, yeah. instead of being outraged, those are it's just such a useless fucking feeling instead of feeling instead of becoming the victim of Donald Trump, because by being his victim, you're admitting defeat to him. You're giving him your power. Why don't you step back from that and say, oh, this is balance. This is a reminder. This is what the universe is really up to. It's cosmic love and cosmic love is cold and indifferent to our feelings about it. It's just doing its thing. Yeah. And it's like, here's the balance. Like, if you go too much into the wild basis of nature, guess what? You're going to get. Yeah. Right. You're going to get the balance back. Yeah. Wow. That makes that makes so much sense, man. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That, that's that's a very different idea of, of like Earth consciousness mm-hmm. that, than the kind of idea that Mother Earth cares about us. <laughs> 
I yeah. feel like Mother Earth is is kind of like a mother that eats her own children. Totally, <laughs> yeah. totally. She's like, mm, 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 mm. Yeah. humans, no, mm, no mm, mm, more. Yeah, it, totally. Mother Earth. Um, I think we like to project a lot of like our best qualities onto what Mother Earth <laughs> yeah. is, and yeah. and that's cool because. In a way, I mean, like, where else could we have come from? We came from Mother Earth. We, you know, we're, we're in this little Petri dish, like you said, and it just, it took billions of years, but here we are. Like, this thing, Mother Earth, birthed us, and we are its consciousness. We are its tentacles. We are its, like, little grass growing up. Yeah, we really know. It, and, and, it's, and it's beautiful, but um, it also, I think, to your point, isn't the way we think of our mothers, you know, yes. it's, it's, it's not, it's not, <laughs> so, it does provide, it does provide, but it also would not give a fuck and could shake us off tomorrow if it decided, you know, so. Yeah. God. <laughs> Maybe when we get shaken off, we get free. So we don't even know what happens after we die. So it's kind of like this beautiful mystery yeah. of like dancing with the, the, the fear and attachment of being here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not knowing. And then we realize like, oh, it's so much better afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Ramda says it's death yeah. death is like taking off an ill fitting shoe. And I'm like, oh that resonates with me. That was good, yeah. yeah. We have all had like shoes that don't quite fit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ramdas died recently, right? Yeah, yeah. He tapped out just in time. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> he really did. He he got out in I think was it December? Yeah. Yeah. Cass had a really like really hit me hard. I don't know. Like it, but the other day we were on acid and she was like fucking we we have this picture of Ramdas up there and okay. she was like fucking Ramdas checked out just in time. Just we could just before we could all call him on his bullshit. And I'm like, yeah. "Yes." <laughs> totally. It was so important to me. I remember in college I would take acid and I would listen to Ramdas and Malcolm X whoa mm. nice yeah that was that was a kind of crazy mix mm. and, but i i actually found that it was healthy because they balanced like in my head that they balanced each other out yeah those are some good chosen fathers right there yeah yeah yeah, yeah there were my chosen fathers ram das and, and malcolm x and you know back then like i would you know you'd have the cassette and you'd just have like the yeah you know and then, so i just i remember like smoking weed or being on acid and listening to them and yeah and i remember how soothing ram das was Oh, um, yeah. And I think it was more about the, the gentleness and the tone of his voice mm -hmm. that taught me almost as much as what his actual words said. Yeah, he's so real, too, and so honest and so, yeah. like, graceful in his imperfections. And by yeah. him appreciating his own beauty, you can appreciate your own beauty and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and so many, like, he he would speak to all these things that made him who he was and... Whether whether it was uh, the acid or finding Neem Karoli Baba or all these things, but like yeah. in the hundreds of hours of Ramdas that I've listened to, there's little clues in there. And uh, he has a schizophrenic brother, and I'm like, oh. that's who made you who you are. That's what made your heart melt and stay open to the world. And all these other things were just like little placebos that kind of kicked that into gear. But your and schizophrenic brother, I know, I know you've you've had to deal with family crises and yeah. maybe both of you have but how do, how do you think that his schizophrenic brother made him who he is well you, you have to let go of um all concepts uh, like like i have it with my sister my sister has epilepsy and she probably has the mentality of like an eight or nine year old she's 32 she just sits there and she watches disney movies and she hangs out and there's just this purity there's this purity to it and i have by having her in my life 
had to let go of all of um, the societal projections and expectations that would be put on her and just accept her for who she is and that, that she's this beautiful wounded Buddha that, that sits in my living room and I get to go and kind of bask in that light, that non-judgmental light that she lets off, that smile, that, that, that angelic beauty that comes out of somebody who, um, you know, they're, they're not tarnished by all the things of society. So I think when, when someone's going through mental health struggles on the level of schizophrenia, you have to open up the doors of compassion or there's other parts of your soul that are going to get shut down and tamped down. And Ram Dass wasn't interested in tamping those things down. He was interested in exploring them. And I think his brother was probably more the portal for that happening than the mushrooms or the acid or Neem Karoli Baba or all the adventures, all the meditation, all that stuff. Um, you know, and we, we all have those reminders in our life. We just might not look at them like that. I've, my view of my sister has completely changed since I discovered spirituality. And that's been very influential on my parents. And we've started to treat Caitlin a whole lot, but we already treated her great, but we've started to treat her a whole lot better. And her life has improved by me improving my life. Uh, you know, it, like it's, it's really magical like that. And Ram Dass left a really great ripple. And I don't know, the other day when we were on acid, I was, I was, uh, uh, Timothy Leary came into my head. And what, and what a beautiful, perfect balance to someone like Ram Dass. Yes. It's, it's Timothy Leary. Yeah. Timothy Leary, like, like, cause I have more probably that Timothy Leary in me than, than the Ram Dass. It's like the acid hits me and I was like, I was thinking about him. I'm like, wow, Timothy Leary took this before really anyone knew about it and was like, yo, let's see if we could use this drug as the excuse to tear things down, yeah. to fucking reboot this thing, to fucking change everybody's mind about shit. And I'm like, that's a hero. That's the fucking, that's a hero. That's worthy of the word for me. Is like somebody who took this substance, saw the light and said, let's do something about this. Or at least let's try. Oh, oh I love that. That's interesting. Cass, what about you? Is there, is there an archetype? Kishan just talked about about the hero, right? Mm -hmm. Timothy Leary being closer to you. But do you, do you have an archetype that makes you? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I just I guess that this is coming forward because this is also something that happened on the acid trip is like realizing, um, like Jerry Garcia and all that he offered and that that we that we that we killed him you know what i mean like our we, love for the grateful dead killed yeah our obsession our wanting to get close to him our wanting to him to like perform and keep it going so that we had something you know that we maybe it's not as personal to me and who i think i want to be but i just um right now with sean talking about that and kind of the awakenings i had recently on that trip was like wow we fucking killed him and he had to fucking do heroin to to medicate I mean, everything. I didn't know he did heroin. What? Oh yeah, yeah. I he, didn't know that Jerry Garcia did heroin. I just thought he was, you know, a psychedelic guy. No, unfortunately, the psychedelics kind of fell away, and the cocaine and smoking heroin uh, took over in like the mid '70s, and then it was just 20 years of ups and downs, and basically Jerry Jerry possessed medicine that only he had, and that's a lot of pressure. You know, Jerry didn't have a Jerry. Yeah, you know, he just was Jerry, and we all needed his medicine so bad that it fucking killed yeah, this guy. He died at fifty-two years old. He looked like he was eighty-two, 
and uh, oh. he, he was a gift. What it does for me, though, is realize, like, God, I idolize Jerry, and I think he's, like, a fucking God. I do <sighs> think all that stuff, but I've also realized that no one's more powerful than me. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to give my power to anyone because it puts an unfair burden on them. You know, no one has the answers to my life. No one, I, no one, <laughs> no one can tell me the way. You know what I mean? I'm telling myself the way through my experiences with other people, but I've, the only place I've been able to find home and balance in my heart is when I've reclaimed my own divine power and mm. not looked to anyone else to give me the answer, you know? Yeah. Mm. What about you? So Do you, you have You don't rely on archetypes. Like for you, you're like, the mirror is my archetype. I need to find my own way. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that sounds good. Do you have one? Yeah, what about you? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think in the beginning I was, uh, so for me, like uh, the the place of the father was always absent in my life. I, I never knew him. I never, so I was always looking for a father archetype. Mm. And so, yeah, I definitely was like, Malcolm was like a chosen father for me. Ram mm. Das was a chosen father for me. And, and so I would piece things together. And and I, and I guess maybe in some ways I'm like cast on this is that I realized that I I didn't there was no father because I eventually began to see all the fathers had a shadow side, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know like you know Malcolm X had some hypocrisy Ram Dass had hypocrisy Gandhi was full of shit sometimes <laughs> yeah um and so all all of these great heroes that we look up to means that we can't look behind them right and see the the lives and the people who they've hurt as they became who they were. Mm. And so um, I realized that I didn't, I couldn't find myself in anyone anymore. And, and so when I started growing dreadlocks, um, I, I, I was trying to grow dreads to anchor myself into myself, mm. you know, to anchor myself into my, like my own experience. And then also to anchor myself in the kind of pan-African, pan-Latino world. And so they, they became kind of like these tree roots dangling out of my heads, going further into the, the dreams and the nightmares and all the unspoken glances left behind by the whole diaspora, the indigenous diaspora, the African, the Latino, like all of it. And I was like, just drawing that up into my brain, like tree roots, drawing it into my brain because I wanted to understand and get a map. But then eventually I realized that, that, the, that the roots were going further deeper into like my body. And I was like, oh, what is, what is my body's experience? And they needed rites of passage. And so I began like kind of a journey um, that started, I guess, with 9-11. And I began to go to disaster zones and war zones as a reporter. And I realized that I felt so helpless in so many times of my life, and especially on 9-11, I never wanted to feel helpless again. And so part of me was like going into like the crisis zone and doing something to help other people. And to come out and to try to let other people know what's going on. So I, I was never helpless again. And I kind of knew what, what the deal was. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember I began to have dreams in like 2008 of waking up bald. And at that point, my dreads were like five feet long and they were very heavy. Mm-hmm. And to the point where I looked like I had Botox because they were like just constantly like, <laughs> like they were just like pulling my skin back. And people were like, well, you've got great skin. I was like, no, I've just got like 40 pounds of hair on my hair. <laughs> and it was just like. You know, if, if you had to, like, do a car wash, you could definitely just, like, pass your dreads, like, pass your car through my dreads. Um, so eventually what happened was, is I, I went up to the mountain and I cut off my dreads at sunrise. I, I, I started at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning and it was Mount, um, it turned out to be Mount Phelps. And I climbed up and it was, like, four or five hours. 
and I got to the summit and I saw the the sunrise. And as soon as the sun broke the horizon, I cut off all my my dreads. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that was for me a rite of passage to say that I don't need to look for other people. I need to only look at my own experience. And and that has to be what guides and teaches me because what everyone else has lived, there may be some common universal humanness, but in the end, like I need to be honored my own like specific journey. Mm. And um and so yeah, that that became like my my archetype. I think the, like Cass, like the mirror is my archetype. I, I needed to like find my way through myself, not not give myself up to others, you know? Yeah. And I think part of it is because like there's so many kind of very shady uh hucksterism you know like right people are constantly trying to like i have the answer and they'll sell it to you for a a steep price totally and people really just make it rain to to (laughs) give give people you know their power they willingly give up their human responsibility to carry their difference the burden of their difference and give it to someone else Mm -hmm. and and i just think that you know i think what makes me in some ways a little bit old-fashioned is that i think that that my difference is both my blessing and my burden and whether it hurts me or whether it heals me, that's my fucking responsibility. And mm-hmm. I have to carry it. Like that's not anyone else's responsibility because no one else knows how, how am I going to expect for them to know, mm-hmm. you know, so no archetypes for me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like just some good wine. Yeah. Man. This should be someone's archetype, right? The bottle. <laughs> Wine dad. Wine yeah, dad. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Wine dad. Oh man. I'm um, sure someone has a kink fetish for that. I'm sure. Yeah. Like, oh, you might be creating it. You definitely. You're looking good in this video, man. This one's going on YouTube, so we're, we're heading. Oh, into... that's awesome! Hi, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, this was. Don't forget to wear your diapers, YouTube. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> I think there'll be some Google searches after this. Um, yeah, I hope so. Nick, this is a damn pleasure, as always. Yeah. Always fucking scratch a new territory, and you take us on such a ride, and we just are yeah. infinitely grateful. I pray that our next one is in person, and that it's very soon, and that we're not breaking any oh. orders by doing that. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, look, if we all want to get COVID together or not get it together, I'm fine. Yeah. Just- I just, I'm, I, yeah, thank you so much. It's so good seeing you, but it oh, makes me realize how much I miss actually just being in front of you and like holding your faces in my hands. <laughs> oh, man. I'll never forget uh, the first time I ever saw you. Well, no, I, not the first time I saw you in person, but the first time we really met, you came over here for um, a podcast right after Trump was elected. And yeah. we didn't know each other at all. And you came in and we gave each other an embrace. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we were just like leaning on each other's shoulders, like like a man hug, a real yeah, man. And I was like, I love hug. this dude. I was like, I fucking yeah. love this dude. Whatever we talk about, whatever, it's all good. It's all fine. I just it was know. Like I love electricity you. shooting between our nipples. Yeah, <laughs> it got even like coarser. It was beautiful. Wait, we have to not get this banned from YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Free the nipple. <laughs> Where are my nipples? There they are. Uh, <laughs> cute nips. All right, I know you guys got to go. Yeah, man, this was fucking awesome, and we'll talk soon. Is there anything you want to tell people? Like, is there any, like, thing they could, you know, I know your work for the independent is something that we always promote. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, you could follow on Truth Out. Uh, the book is Ground Below Zero. Um, but honestly, you know, in the end, just never stop imagining. Whoever's yes. out there listening to this, you know, more important than whatever I write is whatever you're imagining. 
you know, I, and I think if you follow your imagination in its healthiest, most loving way, you're going to bump into someone else who's literally imagining something very similar. Mm-hmm. And, and when you all bump into each other, you're going to almost by accident, on purpose, the universe is closing its eyes, but feeling it anyway, you're going to bump into paradise because everyone's kind of searching for something similar. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, just keep, keep imagining that there is something better. And then when you meet people, try to make it real. I love that. Beautiful words, as always. Nicholas Powers, thank you. Mm. Bye, Nick. Love you. Bye. Love you. Peace and love, my brother. I love you guys. I'll <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> Let me see. Oh, there we are, just the two of us. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Nick, uh, Nick is always, like, one of our best guests, so... I don't know what to say. That was a. I'm going to be doing some integration work. That was a fucking heavy download. We talked about a lot of stuff I really wanted to talk about, but uh, maybe didn't have the words for. And Nick is somebody you just kind of like. I just give him like a couple little raw like ingredients, <laughs> and then he's like, "Look at this meal." Yeah. So totally. yeah, he fucking killed it. Thank you all for watching. Subscribe to our channel. This is the Very Ape Podcast. We're Sean and Cass. We're also available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We also make films, which you can see on this YouTube channel. Check them out. Leave a comment. Say something nice. We love you. Peace and love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.